We've just heard Ed read all of Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 19. There's no other 24-hour period in the life of Abraham that is described in such detail. This is 24 hours. If you've been with us all along, the narrative, the story has been blazing fast. We've gone over 24 years in Abraham's life and it's always been quick stories. And now suddenly the pacing of the movie slows down excruciatingly. This midday lunch with three angels that ends in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which occurs early the next morning. Now, clearly, these two events, Abraham's tremendous act of hospitality toward the three strangers and God's utterly devastating judgment of Sodom, these two events are knit together into a single literary unit. Now, why? Because somehow, together... They form a single act of God's formation of Abraham. He's forming Abraham into a great man, a great man of faith, a great husband, a great father. And for Abraham to be formed deeply and truly, to become truly a human, he must grapple both with hospitality and with extreme Political justice. Now these two events, they are deeply important for Abraham's formation. And they're important for our formation. For us to become genuine humans and genuine children of God and to be genuinely good citizens of the world... We've got to come to grips with both hospitality and justice. And not reduce justice to hospitality. We've got to live with both of these that are knit together into a single whole. What is God doing in this moment? How is God forming Abraham through these two mysterious and complex events? Well, look at Genesis chapter 18. Look at verse 19. This is a key to the whole mysterious set of stories where God says, Genesis 18 verse 19, I have chosen him, Abraham. I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How? By doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to Abraham. Now, what does God promise to Abraham? Those of you who have been with us since the end of July, we've been walking through Abraham's life. What has God promised to Abraham? He's made massive promises to Abraham, extraordinary, unbelievable promises that through Abraham, God was going to heal the world. What's God's end game for Abraham? It's for Abraham to become the kind of man who can receive the promises. What God is doing is he's making Abraham into the kind of person who can receive 
the gifts that God has promised to Abraham. Chapter 12, 24, long years before this moment, God made these great and extravagant promises. And for 24 long years, God has been at work in Abraham's life, forming him so that he can actually receive what God promised to him. And then we get to Genesis 12, 18, and 19, and we see two trials. A trial of hospitality and a trial of judgment. Two trials knit together. Hospitality, it's challenging. Judgment, it is painful. These two trials knit together. And in, God, in Abraham's long education into a man of righteousness and a man of justice, hospitality and judgment are central. Righteousness and judgment center around Hospitality, I'm sorry, righteousness and justice center around hospitality and judgment. This week, we're going to cover the first, hospitality. Next week, we're going to cover judgment and talk about how they relate to one another. In Genesis chapter 18, we have the test of hospitality. Now, those of you who have been with us over the last several weeks, you'll remember That immediately before this, God gave Abraham the act of circumcision. Circumcision is a nation-making event. It functions in the life of Abraham and his descendants as a boundary marker. A clear separation of Abraham and his people from others. That's what circumcision was doing. People circumcised are in, the uncircumcised are out. It's a boundary marker. It identifies who's a part of this, who's not a part of it. But there's a trick. Boundaries are important for groups to have identity and cohesion. But they also are dangerous. Because group boundaries can become a source of pride and self-love. We're in, you're out. We love us, we look down on you. And remember, way back at the start of Genesis 12, God's relationship, his covenant with Abraham is for the sake of bringing blessing and righteousness and holiness and goodness and health and flourishing to all human beings. The Bible is the story of how God is dealing with evil in the whole world. Of how God is taking evil out of this world and healing the world. So here, immediately after his circumcision in Genesis 17, Abraham is tested, how will he now treat the outsider? The test of hospitality follows the boundary marker. Here's my gift to you. Here's how you know you're in or not. And then the next test, how are you going to treat those who aren't in? The Lord appears to Abraham in disguise. The Lord and two angels in the guise of foreigners, travelers. And they station themselves outside of Abraham's tent. And they're waiting to discover how Abraham will treat them. Now in chapter 18 verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. We the readers, we're told the secret. We're given the identity of the visitors. But this is the narrator talking to us. Abraham isn't told this. 
In fact, at the heart of this test of hospitality, at the heart of the trial, is this issue. Will Abraham be able to see for himself what the narrator tells the reader? Will Abraham be able to discern the presence of the Lord in the person of the stranger? Will he be able to genuinely value others, especially those who are not his own? Well, we heard the story read a few minutes ago. Abraham passes the test splendidly, right? Immediately. Here he is. He's just finished his morning work. He's just preparing for his siesta, which he would have taken in the hottest part of the day. He looks up, he sees the strangers, and immediately he runs to meet them. He bows down in this very gracious ancient Near Eastern way of welcoming an honored guest. He honors their dignity by graciously understating their needs. Notice what he does in verses 4 and 5. He implies that they're just passing by and at most they need a little water to wash their feet and a shady place to rest. What's he doing here? He's giving them honor and dignity by not just putting them so low and so needy. He's understating their need. And at the same time, he understates the inconvenience on himself and the amount of work. It's, oh, I'll just get a little morsel. And then he goes off and he slaughters a, right, a calf and he, and, he, and, he, and he makes this bread. He does all this work. I'm just going to go get a little morsel. I'm sure you just need a slight rest, a little bit of water. I'll be right back. And he makes his guests feel as if they are honoring him by letting him serve them. He's a quick and generous and open-handed host. And God is there seeking to discover whether Abraham's entrance into God's family has corrupted his ability to love the outsider. But it hasn't. He passes the test With an A plus. Now what about you? Those of you who know the love of God. Who have been graciously saved and forgiven and included in God's family. Has that reality formed you in the habit of hospitality? Are you leading the kind of life. That has room for hospitality. You see, generally speaking, if you're too busy for hospitality, you are too busy for Christianity. This is true home economics. Making the kind of decisions that lead to the kind of life that you have time and space and resources for generous, gracious, lavish hospitality. That's Christianity. That's the test. It's not this big lofty test in dogmatics. It's not can you parse this theology and that theology. It's a stranger showing up at Abraham's tent. Right after the biggest event in his life. His circumcision, his inclusion into the covenant. And then the stranger shows up and it is a flat out test. One of the most complicated issues that we face in our day is this issue. Let me just walk through a few ways this works out. 
Take, for example, the two-income family. One of the most difficult things about being a two-income family is the loss of space for hospitality. Will you structure your life? Will you make decisions with hospitality as a fundamental issue in the equation? Janelle and I sometimes think and talk about what it's going to be like when the kids get a little older and she has the opportunity to choose where she works, outside the home or inside the home. Lately, we've been talking about this. Because we can see it on the horizon. We have five young kids, for those of you who don't know. Twelve to six. And there are many factors that go into what, how we're going to structure our family in the next season. But a critical factor has to be hospitality. Because it's fundamental to Christianity. It, it can't only be More vacations, more spending money, affording to put all of our kids in private school. Hospitality has to be one of the factors. Not the only factor, but an important factor because God will test us in this. This is at the heart of Christianity and it should be a considered factor in your decision making regarding where you live, the house you buy, How you structure your life. How busy you are. When you decide if your kids are going to enter into extra mule sports. It has to be considered the impact on your ability as a family to offer hospitality. And for parents. This has to be a factor in the way we raise our kids. Did you notice Abraham put his entire household in the service of hospitality? He organizes the whole family. The whole establishment, the whole household gets organized in the task of serving the strangers. This lavish feast of fresh cakes made from fine meal, a tender dish of dressed veal and curds and milk. Now my question for the parents in the room, are you training your children... In hospitality, it does not come naturally. You know what comes natural to a child? To walk into a room and not notice anybody else. And not even notice the volume of his voice or if he's running around adults. Parents, our job is to get the whole house involved. And there's practical ways to do this. When Janelle and I are having people over, we make our kids stop in advance and be a part of getting the house ready. We make them go out on the front porch and wait for the guest. We teach them when the guests arrive, shyness is no excuse for rudeness. You have to look at their eyes. You have to say to them, welcome. This is training. This is not something that comes natural. Maybe to a few weird extroverts. The favorite among us. We have shy kids just like you. We have rambunctious kids just like you. And some of them it's easier training and some of them it's harder. Some have to overcome their their forgetfulness of their environment. And some have to overcome their shyness. Their soul depends on it. 
because hospitality is at the center. Parents, are you training your children? Are you holding your children accountable for recognizing others? In my house, we allow our children to use the B-U-T-T word. My mother, from the deep south, is scandalized by the word. So you know what we tell our children? If we ever catch you using that word around your grandmother, we're going to hurt you. In other words, you know what? They are responsible to attend to their environment. This is a big part of civility in parenting. We should not let children get off the hook, no matter what their age is, to paying attention to those around them. But it's not just our bodies. Hospitality is about our homes. One of the church fathers, John Chrysostom, 4th century Archbishop of Constantinople, in a sermon of his I was reading a few years ago, he called the people in his church to add on to their houses, to build a spare room, and to call the spare room the Christ room. He said, because if you name it the Christ room, then you can remember what the Bible teaches us about when we host others, that beware, Christ is in the needy. Next to your body and your mind, your home is the single great, greatest resource you have for actually living out the Christian faith. Your home is. And we practice the Christian faith at a fundamental level through our homes. Do you guys know Phil and Leanne Wickline? Do you know that they added onto their house so that they could host? Because there were seven people squeezed in a house that barely made room for them. Leanne's Leanne's been reading books and thinking about homemaking so that she can host and be hospitable. The cooks are going through a similar renovation. And Paula told me the other day, I don't care about knobs on drawers and colors and all that. I just care about people flow. And dominating her imagination is how their home is fundamental to their Christianity. And the Ditos, they have this remarkable basement apartment that they use for many things, but at the center of it is serving international students over and over who need to live in such a place. Have you ever been to CJ's house? CJ has thought long and hard about the purpose of a living room and decorating and arranging his living room so that it can actually do the thing that human architectural evolution has made it for. And we need much more of this. Homemakers, you have got to rise up and ask, what is the purpose of a foyer? What is the purpose of a dining room? You've got to dive down into these issues. You have got to become experts at homemaking for the sake of hospitality. We need homemakers who will attend deeply to decorating and arranging and designing rooms so that they actually produce human flourishing. The built environment, architecture always wins. It will always trump your aspirations. So beat it into submission and bring your built environment into line with your Christian virtues. 
the Deatons, had a remarkable house in Augusta County. And out of God's work in their heart, they knew that God was calling them to come into the city so that they could offer hospitality. Their house didn't sell, so they holed up in a little townhouse while they were paying two mortgages, waiting on this house to sell for far longer than they had signed up for. And as soon as it sold, they moved into a house that they could serve the community from. And I've lost track of how many people. I mean, we could have people in this room stand up who've stayed at their house and have lived in their house. The Hewavitas. Where are Kim and Indy? Are they here? Kim and Indy. Uh, they came there. Indy came to our small group one week. The next week, his wife came. The next week, we needed a new place to meet. <laughs> and they opened up their home, even though their home is not ideal for the size of quasi-small group that we have. And parking is so complicated. And the list goes on and on. Our church started in the very beginning by people who had been shaped by God into remarkable hosts. But don't misunderstand me. Hospitality in the Bible and the Christian life is not entertaining. Hospitality is about enlarging and extending ourselves. Just like you enlarge your table, you put in a leaf so that you can bring up another chair. Hospitality is about enlarging and extending our hearts to fit someone else in. It's about the inner stretching of the heart. Because if you have someone over, but you don't open your heart to them, that's the inferior product of entertaining. That's not hospitality. Ed and Esther Good. <laughs> the first time I met Ed, uh, our church is not quite four years old yet. The first time I met Ed, one of the first things he said to me is, I don't know if I can do another church plant. Esther, one of the earliest things she said to me was, we're hurting because we've come out of a painful situation. And both of them, who had no peers in the church plant, in their age or their wisdom, they opened their heart. To a church plant. And if Ed and Esther hadn't opened their heart to this church plant, I'm not, I'm not sure it would have ever happened. Mary Beth Hogan, how many of you, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have been to Mary Beth's house to, um, for a setup called Let's Make Some Applesauce Together? The list goes on and on. The Pascarellos in Lakewood. It just, I, but I want to stop and ask this question and wrap it up around this. Why? Why is this so important to God? Well, there are several reasons. I I won't go over all of them. And it takes the whole rest of the Bible to unpack why this is such a crucial thing. A couple real quick. Throughout the Bible, we see that the concrete actions of hospitality are one of the fundamental responses to God's generosity. God has been so gracious and generous with Abraham. And it's because of God's grace that Abraham has been invited into a friendship with God. So many of us in this room, we've seen our sins very clearly. And we know how dark and rebellious and sinful and selfish our hearts are. And yet God, in his great love to us, sent his only son to die for us, to forgive us, to make us a friend. 
He opened his heart. He extended his heart to us at great cost. Great inconvenience. And in the Bible we see that the concrete actions of hospitality are a response to that. And we also see in the Bible that the concrete actions of hospitality are an expression, a tangible expression of our love to Jesus. We're not going to go into it, but in Matthew 25, there's this passage where Jesus says, look, when you're doing hospitality to others, you are doing it to me. You're welcoming me. Now this is mysterious. But somehow, when Christians encounter other people, we see someone who is valuable and made in the image of God, no matter how tarnished that image is, no matter what religion is at the center of that image, no matter what sexual lifestyle is at the center of that image, no matter what they vote for that you don't vote for is in that image, we see in this person, tarnished as it is, the image of God. Now look, coming right next is judgment. We're going to deal with that next week and how these relate. But you've got to go through this first to get there. And you can't, you can't deny judgment for sake of hospitality. And you can't deny hospitality for the sake of judgment. They both are right together. When we feed and house and give our full attention to another person, we are tangibly loving the Jesus that we sing all of these songs to. A third reason comes up in passages like I read out of Luke 14. Again, we'll not dig into it, but just to bottom line it, when we show hospitality, especially to people whom our society looks down upon, the ones who are vulnerable to injustice and exploitation, the powerless, the poor, the widow, when we open our hearts and we open our homes and we make a place at our table and we add on to our houses and we invite into our friendship, when we do that, this gives the world a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. Because God welcomes us all to His feast. He welcomes the least and the lost. And when Christ returns and makes everything new, everyone who accepts His invitation on His terms will be welcomed at His table. This is the story we tell every Sunday at this table. This is Eucharist. Because God is hosting us. Sunday's a meal. And one day, our generous host will have a marriage feast that he will invite us to. He will allow us to say no if we don't want to go. But if we take him up on his offer, what a feast it'll be. Now look back at Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. This is what it means to walk before God. It means the concrete actions of hospitality. In the inconvenient moments, Hospitality. When you're married 
organizing your family and training your children if God gives you children and designing your house and structuring your life to be hospitable. When you're not married, designing your life and structuring your life in whatever place you... Abraham was in a tent. He did it great. Lot was in a city. He did it terrible. Lot had a house. He failed at it. Abraham was a nomad. He succeeded at it. Look, you can't say, when I get this, that, or the other. This is at the heart of Christianity. Structuring our lives. This is the Christian faith in action. Which, by the way, is the only faith that exists. Faith in action. Let's pray.